Welcome to Willard Church of the Nazarene. We're glad you're here. We can't wait to share the service with you.
2 Samuel 9, that's where we're going to be hanging out today. 2 Samuel 9, we are continuing on with our series on David, a renaissance man. We said that, uh, a man after God's own heart. I don't think I I touched on this part about David, but uh, among the people in the Bible, there is no one who has more written about him than David. He's, there's more written about him than Moses or any of the prophets 
we know that Jesus is seldom referred to as a son of Moses or a son of Aaron, but we know time and time again he's called the son of David, right? And that means that uh, when we see David at his best, we get a glimpse into Jesus uh, with his heart. Uh, a flawed glimpse, right? Because David was far from perfect. But we see those aspects. And I think we're going to see that uh, in this passage today. Second Samuel 9. Would you stand with me one more time? We, we honor God's word by standing, right? Second Samuel 9, beginning at verse 1. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David. Then the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Makur, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Makir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, easy for me to say, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied, don't be afraid. David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Father, we give you praise and honor for your word, Lord. We know that it is a foundation to build our lives upon. We know that it is a mirror to examine our hearts and to see where we're not in line with you. Lord, I pray that that would be that today, Lord. Guide us. Show us how we are to live. Show us the people that you are calling us to be, and may it be so. Lord, we love you and we give you praise. In your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Now, we just read David is searching for someone in order to do something, right? Verse 1, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He's, he's looking for a descendant of Saul. Saul was the previous king, right? And wants to show that person kindness. The word kindness is re re repeated in verses 3 and 7. The word for kindness is in Hebrew is one of the most important words in the Bible. It's the word kased, and it's often translated as loving kindness or steadfast love. It's a God kind of love, a covenantal type of love, 
Unfortunately, today it's rare, right? We live in a, a culture of consumer relationships. Think about our relationships that we have with retailers, right? We'll say, I'll be in a relationship with you as long as you provide me the goods that I want, the good merchandise at a fair price, right? Of course, if you stop giving me that good merchandise, uh, or if you raise your rates right, I'm just going to go to another retailer. I'll find somebody else because we have lots of options today, right? In a consumer or retail relationship, we're willing to sacrifice the relationship to meet our needs. You hear that? If your needs aren't being met, you're out. You're on to the next person, right? On the other hand, in a covenantal relationship, you sacrifice your needs to sustain the relationship. You see the difference, right? You're committed to that relationship, even, even when it's not meeting your needs, right? That's covenantal love. That's kased. David made a promise years ago, and nobody expected him to keep that promise. The person that he finds to show kindness to wouldn't have expected David to keep this promise, right? Keeping this promise that he's about to do gains David nothing. He does it, though, because his relationships, David's relationships, are marked by covenantal love or covenant love. In the last couple of decades, there's been a, a shift on how, we've do, how we do relationships. The, the problem is that our retail mindset that is in every other area of our life has invaded our personal relationships. Those relationships we have with our neighbors, our friends, our, our coworkers, our, our spouse, our church, and, and even our relationship with God, we often conduct them now with a retail mindset. That means that the needs are more important than the relationship. Relationships are disposable. We trade them in left and right, right? As soon as that relationship is not paying off like you want it to pay off, right, we slide to the next. We move on to the next, and that creates a very lonely place to live in. This mindset shows up because we focus on needs above relationship. It's also because we focus on freedom. I've noticed this as a pastor. Um, I've noticed that people hesitate on committing to things, and it's because of something very interesting. They, they hesitate on, and, and I'm not just pointing the finger outward. I'm pointing the finger at myself, too. The, the reason that we hesitate to commit, though, is because we want to keep our options open in case something better comes around right? Uh, I would love for everyone to be in a small group, but I know there will be people that hesitate to commit to meeting every week on a certain day because there might be something that comes up that they want to do more, and so they've got to keep their options open. When we ask people to serve, right, I would like to volunteer for that, but I can't commit to doing that every week, because there might be something else that comes along that I really want to do. That's the culture that we live in today. It's because we want to have our options open. We want that freedom, 
right? That's, that's why a bigger church is so attractive, or a new church. Just a new church, it doesn't even have to be bigger, is attractive, right? We can just go there and anonymously attend, right? There's that grace period when you go to a new church that nobody's going to ask you to do anything. It's just like, ah, relaxing, no pressure, no commitment, nothing to do. I can just attend. You know how those pastors are, though. They want you to be a member, right? They want you to commit. They want you to find a place to serve. And they'll hound you about that. Here's the thing. Covenantal relationships always limit you. Always. They, they take away your freedom, right? We know this. When you get married, I'm sure you want a covenantal relationship with your spouse because you want your spouse to limit themselves. You want your spouse to limit who they are going out with, who they're sleeping with, right? You want that. You don't want there to be a ton of freedom with your, with your spouse and who they're seeing and going out with, right? That, that's what we expect. What, what if, though, you wake up in that marriage and you feel like your needs aren't being met? You're called to sacrifice those needs, though, in favor of of the relationship. If we don't, we're going to cheat or we're going to get divorced and go on to the next spouse, right? And as we move more and more to this relational uh, retail type mindset, less and less people are going to get married, right? Because you want that freedom. It's how we are. It's what just as a culture, that's what we train. We, we, we train people as. We encourage that in people, right? You don't want to be stuck. They want the, you want the freedom that you can move on to something better if it comes up, right? That's why casual hookups are so popular in our society. There's no commitment there. You can, you can move on when something better comes along. People want to maintain their freedom. We sacrifice the relationship for our needs dare I say, for our wants, really, right? A truly covenantal relationship does, says, though, I'll, I'll sacrifice my needs for better or worse, right? That's what we commit to when we get married, for better or worse, right? We're going to stay committed to this relationship. But today, our relationships are becoming more and more disposable. We're moving from people that are committed to people that are consumers, and we think that we're just about protecting our freedom, but what we find out is that we're truly not free. We're in bondage, right? I'm okay with this retail relationship with cell phone providers, but I want a covenantal relationship with the people I serve alongside in a church, right? I don't want retail mindsets here. I don't want to serve along people that have retail mindsets that when things are going the way they want, they're just going to bail and go somewhere else, right? I want my friendships to be covenantal relationships. I want my marriage to be covenantal. I truly believe that I could lose my job, I could be homeless, and I believe that my wife wouldn't leave me. I believe that. How liberating. How freeing is that, right? As opposed to being in a relationship where I'm scared if somebody better looking comes along, she might be out the door and going with them, right? Do we really want that type of freedom? Or would we rather have covenant? I think a lot of us have experienced what it's like to be left, right? 
maybe by a really good friend that we had. Maybe it's by an employer that we put in a lot of uh, sweat and we really worked hard and they just bailed on us in that relationship. Maybe it's uh, from a spouse. It's painful, isn't it? Some of us approach our relationship with God like retail, both ways. Some people think that, you know, if God doesn't do what I ask him to do, what I pray about, then I'm out, right? This obviously isn't working out. He's not meeting my needs, so I'm going to be out and look for something different, right? Or some people feel like if they mess up themselves, God's going to be out. Man, I'm, I'm just messing up. God's going to bail on me. But no, my friends, I have a covenantal relationship with God. We're, we're in it through thick and thin, through my stupidity, through, through anything. He's, he's always faithful, but mm, my end. But I know we've got a covenantal relationship, and I know he loves me, right? There's no condemnation in this relationship. How freeing is that? Do you follow the rules because you're scared he's going to discard you? Or do you follow the rules because you know he's committed to you? You know what he did for you, right? And you just want to be committed to him. That's why I follow the rules. Because I know there's freedom in that. There's nothing more liberating than know that you have a circle of friends that would do anything for you, right? The ride or die tight, they'll stick by you even when you do dumb things. There's nothing like that being a part of a church family. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what you're hiding, right? If you share it, uh, those friends aren't going to bail on you. That church family's not going to bail on you. They're going to stick by you, right? But that only happens in a covenantal type relationship where you're willing to limit your freedom. I'm committed to this body of Christ. I'm committed to it. When I want to quit, I remind myself I'm committed to it. David was a covenantal guy. He was willing to put his needs aside. I don't know if we really understand this when we read this passage, right, and, and read about this interaction uh, where David, who's trying to show kindness, who's he trying to show that cassette to? It's the enemy, right? Mephibosheth, the last descendant of the previous king, Saul. Do you notice how Mephibosheth approached David when he was called in? He came in and it says he bowed down. The word is really, he went prostrate. He, he laid down, right? He's terrified, verse 7. Notice how Mephibosheth talks about himself, verse 8. What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? A dead dog. He thinks he's going to be killed. That's how it would have worked back then. That's how it should have worked back then, right? When somebody came to power, they would purge that other line, that other dynasty. That's how kings solidified their position. That's how kings solidified their power and kept it. Everybody knew it. Everybody expected it. Everybody practiced it. In the earlier chapters in 2 Samuel, when Saul died and David was anointed the next king, the Benjamites, the, the clan of, of Saul, the tribe that Saul was from, found a surviving son of Saul and declared him to be king. And so there was this civil war, this terrible civil war for years before David was finally triumphant and could rest in his kingship. To let a relative of the previous king live 
was to invite your own destruction. Pure and simple. You weren't safe until everybody from that other line was killed off. But David didn't kill Mephibosheth. And instead, he elevates him, right? He gives him his grandfather Saul's land back. Do you get that? He made him a potential enemy, a wealthy man. That's dumb. That's what we would say is dumb, right? You're, you're making a potential enemy wealthy. You're giving them means right. And then he essentially adopts him into his family. He says, I want you to eat at my table. If you ate at the king's table, you were in an intimate relationship with him. And here at the end of verse 11, right? So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. He elevated him. That's crazy. Nobody did this back then. But my friends, that's absolutely biblical. That's absolutely what we live our life upon. All religions are similar in that they tell you how to live, right? They share ideals and they tell you to act justly and be good and you should live in this way. You should honor your parents, right? You'll find that in different religions. They're really the same except for one major directive that's only seen in the Bible and the people that believe in our God. It's absolutely different. And it says this in Matthew 5. This is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says this in verse 44. But I tell you, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the, his son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Before I take this further, because this, this question always comes out, let me go off a, a side note here. When the Bible says to love your enemies, right, that doesn't mean you make it easy for them to sin. That doesn't mean you make it easy for them to sin against you, right? Why? Because that's not loving, right? It's not loving to enable someone. If you enable them and make it easy for them to hurt you, you're not really helping them out, right? If you love them, that may mean that you stand opposed to them, that you confront them. Because if you don't, they may stay on that path that leads to destruction, right? Whatever we do, though, we do it with the motivation of love. We don't want to see people brought down. We don't want to see people humiliated. We don't want to act with vengeance at our core, right? There has to be grace behind what we do. That's what David is modeling here in this story. We see the heart of God in this act, right? This is really challenging when you think about it because who does David reach out to besides his enemy? It's his political opponent. Oh, goodness, right? I don't know about you, but anybody but them. Which side are you on politically? We hate that other side, don't we? Whichever side you're on. I don't know which side you're on but there's a good chance you really don't like that other side. We see them as evil. David invites them to the table. Here's the guy that could really be the cause of David's death. He didn't just disagree with him on health care. And he invites him and reaches out to him. 
Why love your enemies? Why bless those who persecute you? Because it's at the very heart of the Bible, right? Notice something else. David isn't just reaching across political barriers. He's also reaching across tribal barriers. This is the tribe of Benjamin. He's the tribe of Judah, right? Can I I tell you, I love when we do dinners together. I hate that we all sit at our own tables. I wish somehow we could figure out how to just put one big, long table. Maybe we could do that, just snake it around or something like that, right? Where we all sit together. Because sometimes we just get in our tribes. And I don't get to know you, and you don't get to know me. And we miss out on that, right? In a moment, at the end of today, we're going to have supper together. We're going to have the Lord's Supper together, right? And I love it that we do it with different tribes, literally, right? People from different countries here. That's a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're blessed by that. We want to be a church that reaches across any barrier, anything, money, uh, status, race, you name it, right? The king invites us to the table and treats us like his son's and daughters. We're adopted into the same family. Amen? The king invites us, right? Others religious believe that you have to somehow get to God. You have to climb up that mountain, and maybe if you're good enough, you can find him. Maybe if you clean your life up good enough, right? Maybe if you start to pray, or you started to do his will, and you found him, and maybe if he starts to bless you, you know, that's what every other religion says. Here's what the Bible says, though. Romans chapter 3, verse 11. There is no one who seeks God. No one. And therefore, Jesus says in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. It's the Father that seeks people, that draws people, right? For God so loved the world, right? Romans 5, 10 says, That while we were God's enemies, listen to that, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through what? Through the death of his son. No one seeks God. He's seeking us. Everyone is an enemy. But God invites us to the table at great cost the cost of the death of his son. Do you understand the privilege we have? We were once all enemies, and we were invited to the table, and now we get to invite other people to the table. We get to invite other people into the family, right? We were once friends. Maybe it should be we were once enemies, but now we're family on a great mission. That's the call of the Nazarene church, right? Of our church. Hey, there's this God that wants to have a relationship with you and he's inviting you to be a part of his family. Oh man, I don't know. You you don't know me, right? You don't know where I'm at. No, I don't know where you're at. But I know where I was when he called me. I was his enemy. And he still called me and invited me to become his son or daughter. 
That's what you can share with anybody, right? You know what really stops a lot of people from coming to the table? It goes back to the retail mindset, right? Well, if I were to become a Christian, would I have to give up dating this other person? Would, would I have to stop drinking before I could come, right? They're, they're afraid that when they come to Christ, they're going to lose their freedom and be what? Miserable. That's what they're afraid of. Mm. We want a God who lets us keep control of our own life, right? We're, we're afraid that if we do submit to him, that he's going to take all the fun away. The party's going to be over, right? What we don't get is that the party's just beginning. The celebration, the freedom is just beginning when we come to know Christ. David invites Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth falls to the ground and thinks his life's over, right? That's what people are thinking. But what's he find? He finds himself empowered. He finds himself adopted. He finds himself a son of the king. We're called to love our enemies, pray for them, because we were once just like them. But by the grace of God, now we're family. He loved us first while we were still enemies, and he calls us to do the same thing, right? Every enemy, every enemy that you have at work, who's your enemies that you have at work, right? I've got some really tough people to deal with that come into my workplace, right? But I honestly, I kind of joke about it. I'm like, one day that person's going to be a sister in Christ, right? That's what I think about, right? There was somebody who came to our church a few years, few weeks back, and they made a video out in our parking lot, and they said, this church is dead, this church is horrible, blah, 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 said all these nasty things about us. We don't have to swing back. We don't have to talk back, right? We just pray that one day that sister will be a sister in Christ, right? Let God worry about everything else. I'm just going to pray for her. I'm going to pray for that family, right? David, at great risk, invites Mephibosheth to the table, treats him like a son. Why did David do that? This is before Jesus was called to love your enemies. Why would he do that? It's because of covenantal love, pure and simple. Verse 7 is the key. Don't be afraid, David said to them. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Right? David and Jonathan were great friends. They loved each other. Jonathan, the son of Saul, should have been the next king after Saul. And yet, Jonathan protects David from his father protected him at the cost of the kingdom. Saul even says to him, hey, don't you realize that David's going to be king and you're not? David had a friend who loved him with a steadfast God kind of love. David had a friend who put himself in harm's way, right, to save David. This man lost his throne because of his love for David so that David could ascend to the throne, right? What a friend. David had a friend like that. And that's why he loved his enemy. Can we be reminded today 
that we have a friend like that, don't we? Right? We have a friend who could have killed us, who could have struck us down because we were his enemy. But he didn't. We have a friend that lost his throne. We have a friend that left his throne, right, and came to this earth so that we could be reconciled, so that we could be elevated, so that we could have our relationship with God restored. We have a friend that didn't just put himself in harm's way, right? He was beaten to the point that he was unrecognizable as a man. Can we fathom that? Beaten to the point that you couldn't recognize him. And then he was hung on a cross. He died in the most humiliating way. He died for us. We deserve nothing. Right? We deserve nothing. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Who is this man? His name is Jesus. The Apostle John records these words in chapter 15, verse 15. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. So what? So that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. This is my command. Love each other. Once you truly experience this kind of relationship with God, do you think you'll be satisfied by a retail relationship with your spouse? Do you think you'll be satisfied by a retail relationship with a church body? Do you think you'll be satisfied by a retail relationship with the friends that are in your life, right? No, I want a covenantal-type relationship with all those people. I will gladly limit myself. I will gladly sacrifice some freedom for that covenantal relationship. I will gladly say no to what I perceive are my needs and my wants in order to have that. Will you? We're called to live counterculture. We're called to live differently, and so many times we look just like the rest of the world, right? It's because it starts right here with a retail mindset. If I'm not getting what I need, if I'm not getting what I want, I'm out. I'm going to bounce, right? But no, we're called to commit. We're called to a steadfast love with each other. Right? When that person annoys you at church, we're called to a steadfast love. We're called to share grace with them. We're called to that with our spouses, right? That's a beautiful thing. That's a great place to live. Mm-hmm.